Rondering's Universe shows the Ron Rapitalo on the mic. And Reese Dunn is the CEO of Ascend Public Charter Schools here in New York City in the great borough of Brooklyn. And real treat to have him on the podcast today from his journey growing up in Texas to going by coastal and eventually resettling here in New York City. It's a real treasure to speak to Reese, learn about his story, and you'll see some humor at the end of the podcast. I'm excited to hear a little bit about that because uh, on these Ronderings episodes, you never know what you're going to get in my guest's brilliance. So last but not least, check out leveragepublishinggroup.com. We ghostwrite, edit, and publish first-time authors. Peace. Ronderings Universe. I am super, super amped to get my friend and CEO of Ascend Public Charter Schools, Reese Dunn on the mic. Reese, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Thanks, Ron. It's, it's good to be here, man. I'm excited uh, about this and I'm just happy to have the conversation. Absolutely, Reese. Well, why don't we jump right into it? What's your story? Yeah, and uh, I appreciate um, the opportunity to share my story. A lot of the way I often talk about my story is kind of where I come from and where my parents come from. Mm. Um, And because it helps people understand the lens with kind of how I see the world and like what's influenced me over time. And this goes back to uh, 1969. My parents got married in Galveston Island, a small town outside of Houston in Texas. And my dad's a black man. My mom's a white woman. And in 1969, not a lot of mixed marriages were happening at that time and place. It's pretty loving, correct, right? I believe it's like two years, one or two years right after loving. But you know, just like with Juneteenth, things are slow to get to Texas. So uh, it (laughs) it took a little while. And so it was a bit of a little town scandal. Galveston's a small island town, uh, maybe 60,000 people. And yeah, like my dad was the only, he was the first black class to integrate into the only white high school on the island, which is where Mm. my mom attended. And the way they met, very Sunday Sunday school special, he was a bellhop. He he worked the elevator in the hotel where my mom lived. Like, can't make can't make this stuff up yeah and um they got married and they they dealt with like lots of racism and prejudice and they ended up moving and i i grew up in houston but even then you know we were the only mixed family we're the only like black and white family and you know we just got we got all the things everything from you know the stairs to the wonderment to like the curiosity and i was an only child for my first eight years Mm-hmm. And I just remember dealing with that at an early age. And my parents, like, of course, they didn't race. We didn't talk about race. So they just kind of like, other than my father, like telling me I was black, like that was clear. <laughs> and then everything else is kind of like figure out on your own. Mm-hmm. The two parts of this is that one, my father um, tells me the story about how when he was in the all black school, like on Friday, he was an A student. And then when he transferred to the all white school, the next Monday, all of a sudden he was a C student. And at an early on, I kind of understood like there were some differences in access and like what was available for for kids and kids of color. And I kind of sat with me and I and I kind of put that to the side. And then as I was growing up, not really knowing anybody else that looked like me, 
Uh, it wasn't really until I first started reading and I was in really it was sixth grade where I came across like a poetry reader. I was in English class and I was flipping through it and they basically said, find a poem that speaks to you. And I found one by Langston Hughes called Cross. And it talks, you know, it ends basically saying, I wonder where I'm going to die being either white and black or black and white. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, there's people like me, like in books. And yeah. this mm. is fascinating. And I didn't know it then, but it really opened up my, it opened one, I didn't realize like what the power of education was going to have in my life. Two, like it just, uh, it opened up this whole other world about identity and race and understanding. And it just, um, and that kind of like led me into what was going to happen next. And, you know, I didn't end up in education initially, but yeah. I, I was sitting with that. I was sitting with kind of like all this, like trying to seek myself, you know, who I was, what my identity was. I was sitting with a lot of like anger and angst around like racism, prejudice, et cetera. And I was sitting with like this history that my parents had like shared with me. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really know. And like, you know, God, I mean, God knew. And eventually I ended up in education, but it took a few bites of the apple before I ended up that, that way. But like that, those experiences definitely shaped, you know, how I've experienced the world, how I enter the world and what, what that's looked like over time and kind of where I, where I think about my own voice, especially around issues around race, identity, diversity, equity, inclusion, yeah. anti-racism, all that. So that's kind of like the very beginning parts. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, fast forward <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and life, life happened after that. But that's the original part of like who I am and how I came into being kind of like the man I am today. Yeah. I'm really curious, Reese, because it sounds like you said you had to pick up some of the history and, you know, your sense of identity. Like, where did you pick that stuff up from? Were there particular adults, educators, other things you've read aside from the Langston you know, Hughes poem that were, you know, foundational for you to say, oh, I have a clear sense of not only who I am and this is leading me to this trajectory to eventually end up in education. Yeah, I would say I don't think it was one thing. I think it was a yeah. it was probably a culmination of a number of things. Yeah. I think having the experience growing up in Houston, I ended up going to school at in Texas, at University of Texas. Uh -huh. And I think even at the time when I grew up, you know, I was born in seventy four, but like my birth certificate still says Negro. Like it's very, you know, it's a very like wow. like like I said, Texas is a little different. Yeah. And yeah. Texas, when I grew up, just was a, you know, there was a lot of colorism as well. And I, I'm a, you know, I'm a fair skinned, light skinned black man. And so I think trying to understand that through others, right? Like that, that's where I got a lot of it was just learning, you know, around being around family members, my, my black family or my white family, or even going to school. When I went to University of Texas, while there wasn't a lot of black folks, I think that was the population that I was drawn to. And that's like how I sort of identified on campus. And I think that helped me start understanding a little bit more about like my place in the world and what it looked like. That being said, I often found I had access into rooms just through either. I, I, and look, I grew up in the burbs. I grew up in the burbs. I went to good schools, good public schools in the burbs. And so I felt yeah. like I was afforded some privilege and access. And I think between that, my skin color and how I navigated into spaces that helped me kind of undersee how there were some differences on how people were treated. And I always, it always felt some kind of way, but I wasn't always sure what to do do about it. And I don't think it was until I got into education where I realized that could be the way. But even that, like I first started in finance, like I worked in finance mm. coming out of school. Yeah. 
and energy, like energy trading of all places. I was and about I to just, say, yeah. if you're in Houston <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Texas, like energy and finance are very commingled. Yeah. That, that was my first job out of school was working on a trading floor. And it was, it lasted all of a year, but you know, I came onto the trading floor one day and all the traders were gathered in a corner trying to make bets on what color tie the boss was going to wear that day. And like two epiphanies hit me. One was like, I could care less what color tie this cat's wearing today. Um, and these guys just want to make deals. They don't care if it's electricity, gas, ties, like, uh, like they just want to do deals. And I was like, I can't, that can't be my life. And then I looked across the trading floor and I saw a sea of white dudes. And I was like, I got to get out of Texas. <laughs> I was like, I was mm. like, I was like, I don't know what it is, but I like, I can't work here. I got to get out of Texas. There has to be more to this world. So yeah. to your earlier questions about like, how did that, I think leaving Texas also informed a lot. So I think I, I sold my car Thursday night, quit my job Friday, flew up to New York on Saturday with like three bags, stayed what? on a buddy's couch. Yeah. And that's kind of like, <laughs> oh my God. I, that was my move to New York and I was 23. That reminds me, my wife, who is a going to be a podcast episode in the next couple of weeks, had a similar story. She was doing Teach for America in D.C., born and raised in Maryland, Baltimore, and decided that being in the Maryland area wasn't for her and literally like packed up, moved to New York to live with her BFF from the core. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you know to take that leap of faith? What had you committed to say, you know what, I'm just going to roll the dice and go to New York and I'm just going to figure it out? I... I, I I mean, this is, I'm a man of faith, so I, I am assuming right. this is God's hand in my life. Yeah. But, you know, I knew I could, I knew I couldn't work there anymore. I was like, okay, I got to go find another job. Yeah. I knew, I had met some people in New York and I was like, you know what? And I'd gone through an internship program called SEO. Ah, okay. Sponsors for Education Opportunity. So I had interned yeah. there for one summer. Okay. And then like talking to some friends who were still there, they was kind of like, they were kind of joking. Like, why don't you go work for SEO? while you figure out your life. And I was like, oh, that sounds, sure. So I called them up and I was like, are y'all hiring? And they were basically, someone picked up the phone. They're like, you want to be a recruiter? And I was like, sounds great. And <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I didn't know what nonprofit meant. Like they're a nonprofit yeah. organization, but like yeah. the way I grew up, my dad thought that was an oxymoron. He was like, what is nonprofit? And like, mm -hmm. and I didn't come to Texas. I didn't come to New York with like, I didn't have straw coming out of my teeth. But I, it was yeah. close. Like I was super green. Like I didn't understand mm. the cost of living difference. I didn't understand that I was taking this huge cut. I didn't understand income tax. Texas doesn't have income tax. I didn't understand none of that stuff. Nobody schooled me in that stuff. So that's how I ended up in New York. You come to New York. This is 1997, 98? Am I, am I year 1998. Correct? Yeah, 1998. And 98 New York was something. So I graduated college in 97. I remember yep. what 1998 New York still looked like. You had to have your head on a swivel. Still mm -hmm. in most neighborhoods, frankly, right? The subways yeah. were still what line, what time of day, depend, depend who was on the, in the yeah. car, right? It just, you yeah, know, yeah. getting around New York. So, wow, I had no idea you were first a recruiter in the world of social impact. So talk to mm -hmm. me about that experience because that's that was my first foray right? to like, really like deepen my roots in ed yeah. is that I started recruiting after being an office manager at Teach for America for 18 okay. months. I started working in New Leaders. So I did admissions operations, but knew that operations work 
was never going to be my calling card. And I wanted to learn recruitment. I literally asked my manager, I want to learn to recruit. She said, go upstairs to New York City people and do info sessions with them. Love it. That's how I got to recruit. I love <laughs> I said, it. You never, you never know. Yeah, yeah. Right. If only the jobs landed like that these days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, I worked at SEO at a time where it was still definitely a mom and pop. It was, we worked in a, I worked out of a brownstone in Gramercy Park. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And it oh. was, it's not the okay. org it is today. Today it's much bigger. It's, it's, we still had dial up. Like I remember we had like a dial up, you know, oh, ALO man. account. <laughs> and the notion of them hiring people who had been alums was new to them because they, they, most of their alums went on to be investment bankers, asset management folks, right. consultants. Yep. They were like, why do you want to work here? Like, and I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, it seemed like a good thing to do. And I like what you, I like what y'all do opening the doors for more folks of color on, in these fields. And I fell in love. I fell in love with the mission. And I fell in love with the work. So it really uh, opened my eyes. And this is where it spoke to like my own sense of self. Like, I was like, Oh my God, like I can get paid to like travel across the country and like sell mm -hmm. this program and interview future folks to come work in these industries and like help mentor them and share my experiences like yeah. this seems the best thing since sliced bread like i like why right. why wouldn't i do this the mm. founder of seo he's still alive um michael oshowitz he became a bit of a mentor to me okay. and this man is now like in his 80s but you know he was older white jewish man who founded seo like in the 60s mm. it just really I, I it felt great like i i it was a small group it was definitely gritty and I was spending my time traveling the country, recruiting at all these colleges. And it really turned me into like, oh, like this, there's something to this, like access equity. What does this look like? Yeah. And that that's I I fell in love with it, but I was broke. And this was the this was the conundrum. I was broke. And so a friend of mine who had also left, he had left banking and was working for a nonprofit. Mm. And he's the guy I was staying with for the first few months. And I was like, dude, like how do you eat? <laughs> like, like, I was like, it's I ain't no money. And craft yeah. mac and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how do you actually eat? Like, cause I think they were paying me like 30 something thousand a year at that time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what you do. And he said, he's like, fool, like, I, I, he's like, I sell Nautica at Macy's on the weekends. And I was like, Oh, a light, a light bulb, a light bulb, mm. light bulb went off, and I was like, I don't know why. You know, here I am, proud college graduate. I was like, oh, oh, got it. And so I started working at Kinko's. Uh, I did the six p.m. to midnight shift. My, Kinko's. I would go from Gramercy Park, go up to like Forty Seventh Street, take off my suit jacket, put on my smock, right. and I would like start making copies. And at that time, back in this was you know, before the full on everybody had phones and every, everything was so accessible. Yeah. Everybody who came, I don't know if you ever went to a Kinko's back in the day, but everybody was mad. Everybody who rolled up in there was just mad. Machines were broken. <laughs> and, and I loved it. Cause it felt like such a, like a, a release. I was like, they're like, who wants to deal with the, the, the angry customers? I was like, I will. And I worked there six to midnight and then 10 AM to 10 PM on the weekends. And, and that, that was a super humbling experience, but that's when I was like, yeah. Do I really want to be doing this day job, which is all this mission-based work, and do this night stuff to make it work? And I was like, yeah, I think the answer is yes. When the answer becomes no, then I'll go do something else. But I was like, this feels good right now. There's something about having a job like that that I think in many of the career arcs that I know of, and I think of mine in particular, 
some of the best experience that I had was doing customer service work Absolutely. because it is, you have to react, but if you don't keep your cool and if you don't keep, you know, how you're going to problem solve in real time, you get eaten alive. And there's something Absolutely. about understanding how to do that well, that I think translates into, you know, when you become the high powered senior leaders, you and I've become, right. It's like mm -hmm. remembering that I'm like, Oh, it gives a level of like, humility and understanding of people's roles in an org. Because I tell folks, like, I remember what it was like to be an office manager at TFA. Yeah, that's right. And those memories still hit from the folks who treated me well, the kind of work that I did, and the folks who'd often, frankly, step over me. Like, yeah. it's like burnt 20 years later. So, yeah. oh, these are the folks who, like, treated me like the help. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, that's why it's always, yeah, always critical on how you are. I think how it gives you a definitely perspective on how you interact with everybody from who opens the door for our kids every day over our security guards to the, yeah. our food service line folks to everybody in between. Like, you know, and I think, yeah, you can definitely see how people treat folks and tell a lot about people from, from that. Man, the night shift at Kinko's. <laughs> that is night shift at Kinko's. That, yeah, this is how I knew it was time to go. They asked me to be like the assistant manager. And I was like, no, I was like, this was not like, this was not, meant to be, this was not meant to be the curve path. And I was like, maybe it's time to go. And, um, and so I spent four years at SEO. Okay. I had, I was like, okay, this was a nice thing to do in my life. This was nice to experience New York. I got to go back to business school, make, so uh -huh. I can switch careers and go make my millions. That was like famous last words. I'm going to go to business school, make my millions, go switch yeah. it back to finance or something like that. And so that, that led to like the second or third act or whatever we are at this point. So you went to B school. Yep. Did B school lead back into a role in finance or corporate America? Did you go right back into ed? Like what's that trajectory and what was happening yeah. then? I went to, I was fortunate. I went to Stanford. I got there and I heard they had this joint degree program in education, but I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't go yeah. to business school to get my ed degree. But like when I got there, it seemed like a very practical thing to do. I was like, well, education is interesting to me and yeah. you can get I can get another degree for the same cost. And I was like, I'm already taking all this debt out. Might as well. <laughs> two for one. <laughs> it feels like a two for deal. I was like, why wouldn't I do this? So I started taking education classes, but like no rhyme or reason. I was just thought it was interesting. Yeah. And to your question, I know I went I had an internship at a commercial bank and and light bulb number three or four hit me. I was like, I was the worst intern in the history of interns, <laughs> like <laughs> ever. Like it was, it was so miserable. I hated it. Uh, they knew I hated it. I was terrible. Right. And I was like, and I was like, shit, what am I going to do? Like I'm right. taking out all this money to get this fancy MBA. I have no desire to work in corporate anymore. It clearly yeah. I've been ruined. Now what yeah. I do? And yeah. it was during kind of my second year where I was in ed school. And I was like, okay, well, this is kind of, there's something to this, like saving the world. <laughs> and, and then I would cross the street and go to the business school. I'm like, nope, not practical. Like I got to like go make some money. Mm. And um, I was literally, I was, in, I was one of those, like I interviewed with all these firms coming out of school, couldn't get any job. And around this time, No Child Left Behind was kind of the, the big education law at the time. There yeah. was a piece of No Child Left Behind that provided money for schools in low-income areas that were not performing well to get free tutoring. And it was highly, un it was called Supplemental Educational Services. It was highly unregulated. Me and you could start a firm. 
a for-profit yeah. could start a firm, a church could start a firm. So it was like the wild, wild west. Yeah. There was a startup company coming out of New York called Platform Learning, and they were going around to, it was founded by a couple of black and brown cats, and they, they were recruiting at business schools. And I don't know, they, whatever they were, the Kool-Aid they were pouring, I, you know, I, it was delicious. Like it was, <laughs> it was like, they were like, yo, this is the civil rights issue of our time. They were like, come get paid and save the world. And I was like, word? And they were offering, they were offering stuff that was too, it turned out it was too good to be true. They were offering yeah. like iBanking, like entry-level salaries. They were offering equity in the firm. I was like, this is ridiculous. I was like, how could I have not known about this? And I was like, sign me up. And wow. that's what I joined coming out of school was a for-profit tutoring startup. Um, and I should have known, like, I'm sure there's probably a case about it at some point, but we, right. year one, they ran schools in, or they ran tutoring programs in like Jersey and New York City. Lots of success. Year two, which is what I joined, this is where none of us, all of us were, stay, were like business school graduates. So we thought this was the best thing since sliced bread. We went down to Disney and like year two launch of the org was to expand to Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Las Vegas, San Diego, LA, and Oakland, like on the same day. None of us thought this was a bad idea, right? <laughs> you young, you figure it out. Like, why not? Hey, I moved from Houston to New York. I'm going to figure it out. Like, there's a certain level, of, like, we just figured it out at that age. I was like, I was like, that's aggressive, but let's do it. And so yeah. I moved, I moved to LA and I started the LA office. And I had, you know, I had no clue what I was doing, but like it, they mm. were like, go sell to all these districts. And these districts, Ron, what these are districts were like, I, you know, I, I'm not from LA. All these districts I knew only through hip hop. Like I was like hitting yeah. the streets of Compton Unified. Right. I was hitting the streets of Englewood Unified, Long Beach mm. Unified. Like I right. was rolling through these, these, these districts selling my wares basically <laughs> and like wow it's like rolling up to, here it go <laughs> it was crazy and you know and look like you know cats know you ain't from wherever so i'm rolling through compton trying to sell some tutoring and like these cats are like why what are you doing i was like i'm just <laughs> i'm trying to help the kids man <laughs> and, and man. they're like okay if you really want to help you know you got to take fried chicken to miss such and such. And then you got to take a diet Coke to this title one administrator, like all these, like, and I was like, and that's how I started getting into district work was trying to roll up through these it's districts. It's always through food, ain't it? Food and the right person. That was yeah. my experience. I worked in newer public schools and the thing I've seen writ large in school districts is that if you don't understand that relationships run districts yep. and you have to know the right people, you often have to feed people. Mm-hmm. You're not getting the right thing to happen. At no, all. you don't get the time of day. Where power is concentrated in school districts fascinates me. It's not what you think. It's not the superintendent. It's <laughs> it's fascinating to me. It was amazing. And that's yeah. that was what first opened my eye to like K-12 work. Uh, yeah. Man. So how long did you stay in L.A. for? Only a year. I, a year. I, stayed, okay. I stayed there. I got real frustrated trying to like argue with all these district administrators about like parent rights. I was like, you know what? I was like, maybe I should go work inside the belly of the beast. And like, you know, that turned into uh, the last 
18, 19 years <laughs> has yeah. been yeah. working inside the belly of the beast. But at that time, um, first, my, I had gotten married. My wife was from New York. We were trying to family plan. She's like, I ain't having babies in L.A. So, like, <laughs> I was like, duly noted. We got to go back to the East Coast. Okay. And I had heard about Broad, the Broad Foundation. Uh, they were mm. running intern or residencies for, like, business types to work in leadership in districts. Yeah, I applied to the program and I uh, ended up getting placed in DC public schools. Ah, okay. And that's, that's when I first got into district, like really districts K-12 and I've been in ever since. Wow. And that was 2005. So we're trying to think, did you overlap with Michelle and Kaya were in DCPS or that's still a little bit before them? It was before then. It was pre-re. Yeah. I met Kaya. She was running, I think, the, the DC teaching fellows at the time. Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, and I was like a broad resident. I worked for the COO there for a couple of years uh, before right through the mayor transition and the mayor was going to take yeah. over schools. Remember that. And then like mm -hmm. my boss left, the superintendent was going to get axed. And so I, I left and went next door to Prince George's County. Ah, you were at PG. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What'd you do in PG? I worked for um, the deputy superintendent, Dr. Bill Height, who became ah. superintendent or CEO <laughs> in Philly. Yeah. World is very small. Wow. John Dacey was the superintendent at the time. So John hired me. I worked mm. for John and Bill and had a great time. I had no, I mean, that yeah. talk about a different, the difference from DC public schools to Prince George's was, was very different. And the leaders there, I mean, and John, you know, John Dacey and Bill Hyatt are definitely strong leaders. And so I got, a, I had the privilege yeah. of working with them at a young, younger, in my younger age. Yeah. What did you learn from John and Will Height has allowed you to be in these superintendent CEO roles? Because those are two names yeah. that you say them in the space. They carry a lot of credibility. Yeah, I um, I think first they are actually, I think, responsible for getting me out of like the business track. Like I was uh, because I only I had not taught. I had only really done business or ops. Right. Which is where yeah. a lot of like non-traditional folks will go. And when I came over, um, John Dacey was like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, you know, I, I want to understand schools and I want to do all this stuff. And here's like, I've done all this ops work. He's like, he's like, you ain't got to do that. <laughs> and I was, like, <laughs> I was like, great. He's like, let's drop you over here. So he dropped me in like accountability. Then he dropped me with, um, with Bill to do like all special projects, but like yeah, helping me figure out like I could, I didn't have to work in ops to like have to be a leader in this space and that I could have an opinion and think about education, even or about, about instruction and education, even though I hadn't like done it. It's not a seat I've ever held. And I don't ever presume to have been a teacher, but right. helping me understand like the value of my perspective, like that was, that was helpful. The other thing I think John helped me see was that first time I saw he used to run communities of practice with the principals and the way he used to push into their work. I had not seen that before, like really getting into their work and like going through sharing experiences, sharing practice. Like that was, that was impressive to me. And then also seeing how he navigated the board about like, he was very clear about how, what he wanted to get done and what he needed from them. That was very eye opening. Yeah. And then from Bill, Bill was very thoughtful around like, you know, moving the work forward and building up leaders. And I think he also saw that I wanted to be more in in the instructional side. Yeah. And so he 
provided all sorts of freedom. He let me basically hang out with middle school principals to learn. Uh, and, and then he, um, often would like help, you know, take me on visits with him to kind of help see what he was seeing. And we would debrief them and just the, the time and energy that they spent with me, especially when I was younger in my career, like it just, it definitely gave me some confidence to realize, Hey, I think that's when I first started thinking about superintendency work as a path. And yeah. I think it was through that, like knowing that was possible and seeing a couple, couple of folks who were like willing to give that sort of energy and mentorship to me was great. Yeah. It's fascinating, right? Because there's a lot of your story that makes me think of my own K-12 ed 20 years. So yeah. people assume because I worked at a Teach for America and new leaders and newer public schools, I've been an executive search for so long. Like you taught, right, Ron? I'm like, yeah. I tutor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know for the last 20, 25 years, right? But yeah. that there are pathways to still, from hearing your story, learn enough about instruction, what happens in schools to inform it and shape it while also surrounding yourself when there has to be decisions made around instruction and pedagogy, you have the experts like help shape that opinion, right? 100%. Yeah. So from working in PG, what was next, Reese? Where did you go next? I went to the New York City Department of Education. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah, I um, Joel Klein was still chancellor, and um, it was in those days also where they were attracting all kinds of talent. By this time, I had had yeah. my second. I had two kids under two, so my wife was like, and my wife is from Brooklyn, so she was like, "We got it, like we got to get out, get back to New York." <laughs> <laughs> Said like a New Yorker, yeah. <laughs> and I was not, I was not helpful at all. So I was like, "Yes, let's do this." And so um, I was introduced to Marsha Lyles, who was the deputy chancellor for teaching and learning at the time. She had gone through Broad. Yeah. Bill, Bill and John had also both gone through Broad, and that's that yeah. was some of the connection. And she asked me, someone introduced us, and she said, do you want to come run the early childhood office in, for the New York City Department of Education? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, I was like I was like, you know, I don't know anything about early childhood, right? I was like, I got two kids, two babies. <laughs> there goes thrown into thrown to the wolves. I know early childhood because I have two kids of the two. <laughs> I was like, that's all I know. Yeah. And she's like, oh no, no. Like she's like silly. Like we don't need pedagogy. Like like she's like, we got that. She's mm. like, we need a leader and a manager. She's like, look, they've been huh. through several leaders in the past few years. They, it's a black box. We get like this humongous universal pre-kindergarten grant from the state. Mm. Nobody knows the quality control. We outsource 60% of pre-K seats in the city to community-based organizations through like 900 contracts. She's like, that's what I need. And I was like, oh, well then I was like, sign me up. <laughs> and right. so I came and started working in the New York City DOE. And it was, ama- I mean, and that, you know, it definitely was an amazing time to be there, but that's how I first got into the DOE. Wow. Your story of working under the Klein Walcott years, there's so many Tracy Breslin, Shane mm-hmm. Mulhern. There's a whole bunch of folks like yeah. that era. Oh, yeah, so much talent. In K 12 ed district, a mm-hmm. golden era of if Shane Mulhern tell me this, because he ended up working in New Leaders, he was the ED of, yeah. of you know, New York. And he said, Ron, folks who worked there in that time, it skyrocketed your career because you just had so much latitude to get things done. There was this, it sounds like a deal of entrepreneurialism that you don't often equate with a school district. Yeah. 
it definitely was an amazing place to be at that time. There's tons yeah. of energy. Um, and there's all these amazing folks who gone, went on to do amazing things after that too. And I think, um, yeah. that was great as well, but having, being able to do that at, at a younger, you know, you still relatively young in my career. Like it was fantastic. And I, and to your point had broad latitude, I had more latitude and autonomy than I probably had any business having over <laughs> early childhood, in New York city. Um, but I learned tons. And I think the other yeah. thing that, my son went to pre-K while I was overseeing pre-K. So like I was a vested, like I was a vested parent participant, right? Uh-huh. Um, so running information sessions, like, you know, parents would come up to me and be like, yo, like I can't get into like my neighborhood school, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, me neither. And they were like, yo, like I'm pissed. I'm like, you should talk to my wife. My wife, <laughs> like, like, it's <laughs> like, it's real. Yeah. I was like, I understand. And so that definitely opened my eyes a lot to like, um, the importance of pre-K and early childhood and what's developmentally appropriate, but it was mm-hmm. great. It was definitely formative and like how I think about education today. Yeah. So what was next after that, Reese? Next was still DOE charter yeah. school office. Um, oh, wow. Okay. All those like kind of waiting for Superman, the lottery, like all those like early days when we were closing schools and having hearings and co-locating. Mm all the early charters and DOE like that's basically was my job to get yelled at every night. <laughs> um, so Kinko's came in handy, basically. <laughs> it came in handy to a, to a point. And then after a while, right. I was like, yeah. I got to get out of here. I left in 20, when did I leave? 2012. I stayed for four years. Okay. I left in 2012. I actually went to new leaders thinking I needed to like take a break from schools. New leaders ended up being short lived. I enjoyed it, but I really missed being an operator. And mm-hmm. so um, I yeah. stayed there for maybe 18 months. And then I ended up back yeah. in Texas. And by this time, my kids were a little older. My wife okay. was, I don't know what she thought. We moved to Houston, worked for mm. Yes Prep Public Schools. I, I had the opportunity to COO there for five years. And also, it was, I mean, it was great. It was a switch from district to charter. First yeah. time. It was a great time to be there. And uh, we were doing a lot of good work. I would have stayed longer and my kids probably would have ended up growing up there. But then the opportunity to come back to New York popped up with Chancellor Carranza and I rejoined and I, I rejoined the DOE five years later. And you're an executive super, if I remember correctly, I was an executive super under Carranza and it was great. It was great until it wasn't like, it was like, you know, the stars seemed like they aligned, like Carranza was pushing a very aggressive agenda on, equity, access, and um, we had a lot of work on implicit bias going on. The cabinet was super diverse. The exec soups were super diverse. Misha Porter was an exec soup yeah, at the I same time. Like, yeah. And we had a lot of autonomy to do some good work right up until COVID. I mean, like basically that was the path. Like we had two years of working like that until COVID hit and it was mm-hmm. great. And then COVID hit and then everything sort of changed. Yeah. I want to go back to Yes Prep. Yeah. I was moving back home. What was that? Like from Reese, who was yeah. raised in Houston, then coming seems full circle to to come back to Houston with a family. Yeah, I um, I agree. When I first thought about it, like Texas yeah. was not on my list to move back mm-hmm. to ever. I always I have an affinity for Texas. I love Texas. I'll never. I'll always claim that I'm a Texan. But I was like, at some point in my life, I was like, I ain't. Never, I'm not going back. The longer I was away from it. And so when we, when my wife and I were thinking about like, how can we, you know, raise the kids and be close to family, Texas was on the list, but it wasn't like number one on the list. And, uh, but we thought good cost of living, 
you know, we could buy some property. And it was good to go back and reconnect with my, my brothers are still there. My mom and dad are still there. Okay. So that was a little, it was a little weird to come back as a grown up, uh, and then run schools in the, in the community. Like that was very different. Mm. And it was just a very different experience than I had growing up. Cause I, you know, the time I grew up, it was just different, you know, than being an operator of schools in there. And then also just thinking about my kids and what they, what their experience would be like. And I think they had some good schooling experiences, but I think, you know, New York kids and Texas kids are a little different. And so, you know, <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. so yep. I think they had some shock kind of coming to Texas at first. And mm. I, and I think they appreciate it. They, you know, we, we ended up having, we had a very like lived in the suburbs we had or quasi suburbs, had a home, had a backyard and all that stuff. And so I'm glad we were able to provide that yeah. to them. And I think my kids are split now. Like my daughter is definitely, she's a city girl. So she like, she refers to Texas like lost years. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And my son, most of his real life friends are still in Texas. So like he, he appreciates the outdoors. He was very active in a boy scout troop there. And so like he, he likes camping and getting out and about. So I think he enjoys that part. So the the kids are split. Uh, My wife was like, she was done with, she was like, I'm done. And also, we were there when Trump was elected, so that was also like a weird time to be Mm -hmm. there. Um, Yeah, it was a very weird time to be there. And, you know, Texas is diverse, but still, here's the thing I love about Texas. I I tell people, so my wife hates it, I like my racism warm. (laughs) Like, I like to know where people stand, how they think about you. Mm -hmm. And when I grew up, you know, people called me nigger. People like I saw Confederate flags. I saw gun racks. Like I never guessed where people were st- like what they thought. It wasn't until I moved to the n- Northeast where I was like, oh, like so coded. I think that was I just got like aggressed. I'm not sure. I kind of yeah. think about that. Mm-hmm. And so like that's the one thing I've always appreciated about Texas. And it's changing because you know times are changing. But like when I grew up, like it was always very clear where people stood. And they might wrap it around some sugar coating, like, you know, hospitality in there. But they, you know, people were always very clear about how they thought about stuff. So, Reese, the next part of your journey then led back to Ascend, right? After the yeah. DOE? After how the did DOE. You land Ascend? So, the DOE that I was at, by the time I was at left the DOE, I was doing all the everything in COVID that was not fun, like I was doing basically during mm. in the DOE. I had switched roles. I had started, I became a chief strategy officer at, at, at Tweed at the at central DOE. And I was, okay. but it was like, I started my job in like February of 2020, March of 2020, the world changed. So like, yeah, I ended up doing all the, all the, the nonsensical jobs from like reopening to closures to like first responder daycare to like, uh, schedules, you know, the, mm. the, the hybrid schedules to like yeah. closures at nights and stuff like that. So I did all that stuff. It got very like, after a while, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then right. I, um, so I started looking for like superintendency or CEO roles. Right. And I wasn't seeking out charters necessarily. I was looking at just districts and systems. Right. And someone told me about Ascend. I knew about them from before and they had had a leader who had been exited and they had an interim. Yeah. And uh, it was in Brooklyn. So that appealed to me. The size felt right. Like it, mm-hmm. we're at 17 schools, a little yeah. under 6,000 kids. So that felt right. And they had started some work on diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. So when I started interviewing with the board and staff, like 
it was real clear to me that they were looking for a leader to kind of take them into the next, you know, stage of growth and yeah. that this agenda could be as real as we wanted it to be. And the board seemed supportive of that. Mm. And some time had passed because they had had an interim CEO between the original founder and when I would show up. And so it seemed like there had been some space and healing because the original founder sort of like got is a long story, but basically, you know, lost some of the crowd and, and got petitioned out a little bit. And so, so that felt right at the time. And, you know, it also yeah. like, I was like, this seems like a great opportunity. So I jumped in and it also felt like an opportunity to serve community that looked like me. And yeah. it was also a good time in my life. My kids were both in high school. Mm. Or my daughter was starting high school. My son was like on his way to finishing high school. So it felt like life-wise, it was a good time to make that move. And it's been, this is my third year. And I'm still here. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> there's, been high, there's been highs, there's been lows. But, yeah. you know, it, it, running schools is, is hard, right? And in any time. And I think uh, after COVID, it just means that there was a few more things to consider and trying to operate schools. And I think there's good days and bad days. But I think all the things that happen in traditional districts happen in smaller systems and charter systems. Yeah. But enrollment challenges, staffing challenges, change management, all the things, like all those things have been have been pain points along the way. And we've had lots of things to be celebrate, you know, to celebrate as yeah. well. So I think like I've, 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 it's been a, it's been a wave of goods and bads and learnings. Yeah. So how would you qualify your three years as the CEO at Ascend? What has been, how would you, you gave some headlines around what that's been like, what's gone well, what could be better? What's gone well, what could be better? Well, I would say we put a line in the sand about the kind of org we want to be. Hmm. Ascend had been around since 15 years, 15 plus years old, yep. but it had changed a few times in its history about you know how it served kids, what its approach to discipline was, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It was very important to me when I got there to really take stock and run a very big stakeholder group to think about like who do we want to be when we grow up? What does this look like? And so I'm very proud of the work we did to kind of lay out our purpose, our mission, and our values. And we changed from being explicitly college prep to being an org that's focused on educating kids and students and ensuring that they can live lives of boundless choice. And that choice may be college, it may not be. And what can we do to ensure that that's, that's possible for, for children? And mm -hmm. so that's something we put a line in the sand. And then the other thing we put a line in the sand was just like the things we think make us unique We are things that we think are not mutually exclusive. So we think we can have a high bar for academic excellence. We can um, joyfully know kids well and, and, and run a responsive classroom approach. And we can have an org-wide approach to like, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. And we don't think those things, some, some orgs do one of those things. Sometimes they do two of those things. I think doing those three together is hard and it's messy, but we think we can do that in Brooklyn with the kids we serve. And I think that's something that we're excited to like make real. And so I'd say the things that I'm excited about is that we, yeah. we decided this is the org we want to be. And I think we were able to attract a lot of talent and people to kind of get behind us and think about that too. So I think that's something I'm excited about. I think the other thing is like, it is fundamentally a different org. Like we attracted so much talent over yeah. not just me, but like all the people we brought on board over the last couple of years. And so it feels like a different pace. There's definitely an energy and buzz to it. Yeah. And I think we tried to like focus on the right things. Like how do we go hard on, 
helping kids be good readers, writers, problem solvers, and like and yeah. investing in the right things. So those things, those all feel good to me. And our our commitment to DEIA feels palpable. Like it's, I'm not saying we're knocking it out of the park, but I feel like we're doing a lot of the right moves to be an org and have a lot of the right messy agreements, uh, disagreements, and conversations to to move it along. Because I think it's it's definitely forever work. Yeah. But I feel like we have both not just from a diversity perspective because we are very diverse org. We're predominantly people of color, both yeah. staff at the network and at the schools. Right. But I think we're having some of the right conversations to push that forward more. But it's messy, and I would say yeah. that's the flip side. What I've often heard, and, and I because we are Gen Xers and young Gen Xers at that, is that I've found that many of us who are young Gen Xers, when you're leading these orgs, that there is enough of a divide on how millennials, and particularly Gen Z or CDIA, work. So talk a little bit about some of that generational navigation because that feels real like i experienced some of that right where it's like y'all not say i disagreed with them in principle the way that people showed up for work and expected things and what that meant on dia it it, i had to step back and say ron don't take your values and assume these things about these young kids yeah (laughs) yeah, yeah. i was like listen but so i'm curious about what that journey's been at the end for you all yeah i think it plays out in a few different ways one way that it plays out is that there's a lot of people believe because we we focus on DEIA that it's all about them versus like why what do we do DEI for? And we often reframe the conversation like it's on it's in service of our students. And like and that doesn't mean screw the adults, but it does mean we're gonna prioritize this work for students. And sometimes mm. that may may mean someone someone who used to work here used to say like inconvenience doesn't equal oppression. A lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times our staff would be like, well, what about me? And I'm like, yo, well, it's not, it turns out it's not about you. It is about our kids. And let's have those conversations. And so I think that's one way it plays out. The yeah. other way it plays out is people like to cherry pick the D, the E, the I, the A. Like they like to cherry pick what part is most important to them. So a way this plays out is that when we rolled out LGBTQIA plus student guide a couple of years ago. Yeah. We we heard murmurings that like some folks were like, nah, like I, that offends my sensibilities. And I was like, yeah. you can't pick and choose the parts <laughs> that that you want to support. Cause if the org is gonna be focused on all this large umbrella, like we can't say we're down for diversity and representation. We're down to have a black CEO, but we're not down to do other things. And I think that's another piece sometimes where it plays out where, and that, that could, that some of that's generational, but some of that's just like just beliefs and where people fall. Yeah. Um, but that's another place that plays out as well. And I think like, that's, that's been tricky. Mm. That's been tricky. And, you know, and then yeah. I think the weaponization of DI can also be problematic, right? Like it becomes, yeah. you know, well, I've had staff tell me like, well, white, a white manager can't rate me on anything having to do with DA. I'm like, well, let's unpack that. Like, 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 I don't think it can be just that full stop. Right. Right. That can't, it can't be so dogmatic. And I think like we, we having the nuanced conversations is hard. And I think getting our leaders more educated on this is something we continue to strive for too. Hmm. Before I ask you the Ron your question, Reese, I'm going to have what I think feels like a Barbara Walters question. All right. So Reese, now 
CAO of Zen Public Charter Schools, all these years of experience and all the trials and tribulations through the different career arcs and geography back, you know, West Coast, East Coast, Houston, et cetera. What would you have told that Reese who was working at Kinko's doing <laughs> that customer service work and, yeah. you know, that recruiter work at SEO? Like, what would you have advised him, if anything, around like, let me tell you where Reese ends up 20 years later. Wow. Um, what would I have told myself? Yeah. I probably would have said, you know, one, I would have said, enjoy kind of like the the journey that you're on, right? Yeah. Take time to smell the roses. Like, I think that's something I definitely would have done as well. And I think the other part would have been you know, the Pope John Paul had a quote. It was like, in the designs of Providence, there are no coincidences, something like that. Okay. And I think everything sort of built on itself. And I think like, I don't feel like I really had an appreciation for that while I was going through it. Mm. And so that's something I definitely would have told my younger self. And the other thing, just as a father, this is just as more as a father, like I would have told my younger self to like, it's okay. You can like, you can step away from work and spend time with your kids. Cause I definitely think about, I'm a much better father with older kids than I was with younger kids, but I definitely would have like, I think that I could have like, I could have had a more full existence had I been more yeah. present at the time versus saying like, it must be work. It must be this deadline all the time. That's another thing I would have told my younger self too. Thanks for sharing that Reese. Yeah. Well, it's that point in the podcast where what is your rondering? What is the listener value you want to share with the audience today? Um, yeah, I appreciate this. You know, look, I'm a fan of Pinky and the Brain uh, cartoon. <laughs> and like, okay. okay, you know, every night in their life, if you don't know Pinky and Brain, they're lab rats. And, yeah. you know, every night, Pinky asks Brain, like, what are we going to do tonight, Brain? And Brain always answered, same thing we do every night, Pinky, try and take over the world. <laughs> I... I there's something to that that helps me like no matter how bad the day is, no matter how like how crappy it can be, like I want to get up tomorrow and try to take over the world. And I feel like remembering that and continuing to like do that fight every each and every day is something that I try to like strive for. And also keeps me add some levity because I, I think you can't get through this life without some levity. But I often am telling people that to like help keep perspective and like you can wake up tomorrow and like have another great day and try and take over the world. So that's often something I think about when I wake up each and every day is, is what am I going to do today to like, you know, take it over. So that, that's my rendering. Love. I referenced the pinking the brain. That was one of my favorite cartoons to watch after getting home from school. Um, that go. and tiny tunes. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Maurice, before we end, is there anything you want to promote? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, we got a chance to talk about, uh, ascend a little bit. And yeah. I believe the work we're doing is great. Look, I, I think our focus, we often feel like we're a well-kept secret and we don't want to be. We serve nearly 6,000 students across um, Brooklyn. We started in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and mm. we've expanded to kind of Bushwick, Canarsie, East Flatbush, uh, East New York, uh, Cypress okay. Hills. Mm. And we, we're focused on literacy and we want to build more champions in Brooklyn. We're, we're the largest charter management organization in Brooklyn. And yeah. we want to like draw some more attention, galvanize some champions, think about like how we're serving the kids well and attract people who want to like come think about supporting us and the work. Uh, and we're always looking for like great talent. We're also looking for supporters to help us think about how we can like provide more resources to the kids we have the honor to serve. 
So that's something that's also, uh, you know, just near and dear and it's exciting work. We do K-12 work and uh, we're looking forward to the next chapter to really ensure we're providing boundless choice to all these students. Beautiful. And um, what's the SEND's URL? Uh, it is ascendlearning.org. Ascendlearning.org. Yep. Folks, check out the incredible work that Reese and his team are doing across 17 schools. When you mentioned East Flatbush, I was like, wait, I was born in East Flatbush. I was born in Kings County Hospital in the year that Ascend is, has a school in East Flatbush that warms yeah. my heart. Wow. That's awesome. That's incredible, Reese. Well, Reese, I thank you for being a guest on Ronderings. It's a pleasure getting to hear your, your story through your career journey and the things that you've learned in leadership and how even at your younger age, you had this commitment to values and justice that took some time and surprise, surprise, the right people to give you the space to be able to explore and build those skill sets. So thank you for sharing your journey. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, man. Awesome. Ronderings fam, we keep coming. More great guests like Reese coming soon. Peace, y'all. Wow, what an a, a way to end today's episode with Reese Dunn. I'm going to do a little bit of my pinky voices. Brain, what's the plan for tomorrow? And Reese, with his humor and his daily fight, says, try to take over the world. That's the plan. And so just appreciate Reese being able to share his story from starting out in corporate America and finding that education was always in his heart. So thank you, Reese, for sharing your genius, your leadership, and your story with the Rotherings audience. So we keep coming, y'all. Check us out with more amazing guests. Peace.